the limitations of the CEO are the limitations of your startup. And if you as a CEO don't work on resolving your own personal limitations, invest in yourself and really grow personally, and that's tough, that's hard, it's painful. But if, if you don't do it, you're limiting the potential success of your own organization. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Julian Taika. He's the founder and CEO of WeFox an insure tech company based in Germany. Julian, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Hi, Gopi. It's a pleasure to be on. Tell us about yourself, starting with your childhood and your German heritage. Yeah, I mean, I was born in uh, Berlin to a American-born mother, actually. My mom was born in San Francisco and to a German father. And um, my father has been in insurance. He's an entrepreneur himself. I quickly realized that I don't want to have anything to do with insurance ever ever in my life. And the reason for that was, so my mom's family, the American side of my family, and most of them are pilots. Every time we were at these family parties, my uncle was standing there telling my family about these passionate stories about flying. And everybody was just glued to his lips and, and, and just was so fascinated by it. Then I saw my dad sitting there and everybody was scared that he would sell them something. Right? I was like, okay, insurance is not cool. Flying is cool. So I was like, okay, I, I, insurance is probably not for me. But when I went to um, university and realized, yeah, I, want, I do want to become an entrepreneur myself. I said, I want to launch um, businesses in areas where I can actually have an impact on many, many people's lives with technology really, really fast. So I went into e-commerce we built a company called Dine Deal in Switzerland, which quickly became the fast-growing startup of the country. Still today is one of the biggest e-commerce players. Uh, we sold it in 2015. Just in the process of, of selling that business, we were thinking about, okay, what's going to be next? Uh, what's going to be the next business? We knew we want to build something global. We want to build something more complex. And my co-founder one day approached me and said, hey, we should do something in insurance. It's, it's hot. 2015, there was the term InsurTech didn't exist yet. There were a couple of like first models in Europe, a model like Knip, for example, started by one of our former employees, actually, of our first startup. We saw these developments and he was like, we should get into insurance. It's, it's huge. I was like, no, I'm not going to do anything with insurance. My dad has been in insurance. I actively decided not to go into insurance. And he was like, hey, can you do me just one favor? On Friday, there's this guy coming in who made a lot of money with insurance. And let's just sit with him for like half an hour and see how technology can impact insurance and disrupt insurance going forward. And let's make it a bit of a brainstorming. So I said, okay, half an hour, why not? On Friday, Bora uh, comes into the office and we actually just have a chit chat. We just exchange ideas. And all of a sudden, Bora says, I'm in. And Dario, my co-founder, he's a great sales guy, was like, all right, 300K for 10%. Bora was like, I want more than 10%. I was like, that's the last offer. So they shook hands. I walked out of the room. I was like, Dario, what did you just do? 
And he was like, Hey, we just started a company. <laughs> I was like, Hey, I didn't want to, I don't want to have anything to do with insurance. So basically the way I interpret the story is insurance is my destiny. I did not choose insurance. Insurance chose me. Essentially, I really had to become passionate about it because um, I cannot do anything in life without really being passionate about it. I was not passionate about insurance at all. I really went down a pretty tough like personal reflection journey on figuring out, okay, what is it that could get me excited about insurance? All of the associations I have with it are negative. And there's just very few things that are actually positive. I made this pro and con list of basically saying what are positive associations, what are negative associations. And the negative was around three times longer than the positive. It was about complexity. It was about inconvenience. It was about intransparency to the customer. Then on the positive, there was this term safety. I went on this journey of just figuring out, okay, what does this abstract term safety actually mean? I met a couple of great people, one guy from a charity organization called Seven Families. What they did was they provided support for families that had terrible, terrible tragedies happening in their life and didn't have insurance. They supported them as if they were insured. I saw this one video about the Pickford family of a guy in his 40s, one day just having a brainstem stroke and going to the hospital, the doctor's telling his wife, we're going to have to turn off the life support machines. Your, your husband is never, ever going to make it. He's never going to have a beautiful life again. She said, no, I want him to live. The guy actually, with the support of this charity organization, fought his way back into life. Yes, it had a huge impact on, on the two of them, but I thought this video was so beautiful because the wife was talking about how now he's, he, he's starting to work again how their relationship is starting to improve in quality and how they are planning to get married again 10 years after the first marriage. That just created so many emotions in me where I just said, wow, this is such a beautiful product. It gives you back life. It gives you back health. It gives you back stability. It makes life worth living. I started building this vision around how technology can actually make people feel safe and be safe. How with a technology business, we could get the core of insurance, which is safety, because this complexity, this intransparency, this inconvenience, this is all just stuff that was created because of the business model of insurance in the capitalistic world. It's not the core of insurance. The core of insurance is this beautiful term safety. This is really how I started getting excited around it building a vision on how we can put safety at the core of insurance again using technology. This is, has been the starting point for WeFox. We've been on the journey now for six years almost. What we've done so far is essentially turn insurance from a very complex paper-based process into still a complex because it's insurance, but digital and customer-friendly process. And it's still not what I set out to do. It's much better. I would say what we've done so far is we made insurance suck a little bit less. But now with the size that we've created, so we're more than 600 employees, we're additionally more than 700 salespeople, we're more than 100, 100 million in revenues, we're growing very fast, we have great investors. So and now with the size that we've created, actually, we can really start 
acting on our vision, which is essentially preventing 30% of all of the bad things from happening in the world. This makes me extremely excited. And I'm, I was thrown into this adventure unwillingly, but I'm very happy that I now am disrupting insurance, actually. Well, it's a very touching story. Insurance is indeed a, a noble industry, but it's very unsexy. At dinner table conversations, it's not something that people want to talk about. So how has it changed for you now? now if you bring up Fox, are people interested in listening? <laughs> I mean, it's not the most exciting topic still, but once we talk about what we are going to do, which is um, essentially become a life coach, I tell people, Stories, for example, how, how me and my wife, just before the pandemic, we were in Cape Town, South Africa, and we uh, were meeting friends in a restaurant. We looked at Google Maps and we said, okay, we can walk. We started walking through really, really dodgy neighborhoods. And we arrived at the restaurant and the friend said, okay, how, how did you arrive? We said, we went by foot from there to there. And they were like, all right, you went through the neighborhood that has the highest crime rates? in the entire country, um, that you're here alive and not harmed is actually almost a wonder. When I say these are the situations that we can prevent with technology, because it would be so unnecessary for you to actually be heard in such a situation, maybe suffer your entire life from it, and we can prevent this. Then people can relate to it. They think um, it's going to become a significantly more important product in their life than it is today. Yeah, this is a very deeply insightful story and there's a lot of personal reflection i see in your message but i want to go back to that meeting the first meeting where you had a 30-minute brainstorming session you got your first believer what was the message you discussed during that time what got that first believer excited i don't know if that's the best example because basically we had no idea uh, we had no plan we had nothing <laughs> Right, we didn't even want to launch a business, so no, I don't. <laughs> like we, we need to get him. Like he probably saw something in our eyes or something, but we were completely clueless. So, not sure where the guy invested. I think it's his best investment till date in his life, but I'm not sure why, why he invested. We we probably need to ask him. What role does your father play with VFox? Was he excited when you first told him about the idea, or did you win him over? What happened there? My father is an entrepreneur, and while he is in insurance, he's a very creative, energetic, inspirational uh, guy. Of course, he's been a huge inspiration growing up, learning on how to take risks. When we have said, okay, we're actually I'm starting a business that in your turf, right? And I have no clue about the industry. I need your support. He was extremely helpful. He was supporting us with building up the business in Germany. The collaboration with him was a huge learning for me as an entrepreneur because one day somebody came to me and we were already maybe 100 employees and said, Julian, I can feel your family dynamic in the most distant part of the company. Everywhere in the company, we can feel the problems that you have maybe with your family or your dad. Stop using the company as an instrument to dissolve your family dynamics. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And it's so true. I and my father, we've grown up together and obviously we have unresolved issues. What I realized is that I have used the company. We have taken the company hostage uh, with resolving our problems. What I learned from that um, essentially is really that the limitations of the CEO are the limitations of 
your startup. If you as a CEO don't work on resolving your own personal limitations, invest in yourself and really grow personally, that's tough, that's hard, it's painful. But if, if you don't do it, you're limiting the potential success of your own organization. You are the limit of your own organization. And if I understood it with that statement, we have separated, we said, okay, we're going to stop working together. I realized that in order to serve my company as a CEO in the best possible manner, I have to work on myself. I have to realize where am I taking the company hostage with my own limiting beliefs. I have to eliminate these limiting beliefs. This is a very personal story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It is true that as an entrepreneur, when you have a good day, the company has a good day. When you have a bad day, the company has a bad day. They're both so closely intertwined with each other. It's a very important moment when you begin to start reflecting on your personal development, which eventually turns into goodness for the company. Who are some other early believers in the company? How did you convince them? I was not the CEO at the very beginning of the company. I was um, the COO. Also at my former company, I was the COO, really taking care of technology and operations. I never, ever had any contact to investors. And when we started the company, again, I was not responsible for the fundraise. Our former CEO at the previous company was also supposed to become CEO at WeFox. And he was saying, okay, basically, we already have the funding. You don't have to worry about it. At one point, we realized we don't have the funding. It's not coming. Right? We had already invested a lot of our own money and, and time. Also, he was in a really tough spot in his life. And we realized he needs a break. So I realized I have to step up and I have to jump into the cold water and essentially change a wheel on a driving car and, and learn how to become a fundraiser of a company that's already, I don't know, 30, 40 people uh, with cash burn every month and, and really being under pressure to learn how to fundraise. And I went out there, no network, no contacts. I just reached out to hundreds and hundreds of investors. I had dozens of dozens of pitches and I received terrible feedback, really, really, really terrible feedback. I was thrown out of the offices. I was, it was very bad. It was very painful, really. Essentially, the company was about to go bust because I was so bad at fundraising. Now that I think of it, it's a very similar story to how we got the initial 300K, right? Because I got an invitation from Mark Benioff, the CEO and founder of, of Salesforce, because I had in my previous startup, I did a lot of marketing for Salesforce, that it's a cool solution for startups and so forth. I guess he just wanted to say thank you, was visiting Berlin. So he invited me and I didn't even think about fundraising. I just thought, oh, it's amazing to meet this guy. So it was just, not just me at this dinner, it was a couple of people. And there was this introduction round. And I introduced myself and I was like, Mark, I'm a huge Salesforce fan. But I want to tell you one thing. Essentially, the substance is going to shift faster than any of us anticipated from these old dinosaurs to young agile startups in all industries. I checked the numbers and Salesforce is making more than 95% of their revenues with old dinosaurs. Almost none with startups and you're, you're not cool. In the startup world, you're called an overpriced CRM system. You're not at the core of value creation in startups. If you don't manage to get to the core of value creation at startups, you're, you're going to die just like the dinosaurs. He looked at me and was like, who's this guy? Like, what is he talking about? And he was trying to say how Salesforce and startups collaborate and... And I, I kept on like 
arguing with him in front of all people. And then he turned around and he was like, are you looking for funding? Like completely random. And I was like, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then he invited me over to San Francisco. He led our seed round. Salesforce led our seed round. Again, I came without the intention of fundraising, without a plan, without even talking about the business. He just said, you, I invest in you without knowing anything about you. Just very similar to that initial situation with the 300K. So quite a lot of similarities there. So I don't know, probably Mark saw something in me and put a bet on us. So your bold statements, your vision, not just for your company, but vision for how the world will be, that really captured the attention of Mark. Now that I think of it as an investor myself, yes, what you want is you want to have someone who is special. Uh, you want to have someone who maybe not really ordinary, who is passionate, who is inspirational and who has something. I know Massa uh, has this great interview uh, where he says, oh, I decide in the first uh, three minutes of meeting someone whether I'm going to invest in him or not. I make base my decision on the sparkle in his eyes. Now that I think of it as an investor, that's really what I'm looking for. If I try to rationalize it, I guess it's really about the size of the vision and the addressable market. You, you never want to have spend time on, on something. I don't want to spend time on something that can become a winner in a, in a niche market. So I want a vision that is bigger than life. On the other side, I want a founder where I get the feeling that no matter how hard it will get, he will not give up. So ultimate resilience. These are the two things that always that I'm kind of looking for. This is an interesting twist to the other side of your story as an angel investor. What kind of companies do you invest in? What stages do you like to meet these entrepreneurs? How many investments do you make as an angel investor? So I'm not a typical angel investor, to be honest. So what we started is we launched a Founders Academy, where we say we want to attract people that have big dreams and ultimate re re resilience. We want to prepare them for launching their own businesses. Then we said, okay, so the next 15 years, the world is going to change drastically, much more than the last 15 years. So the global dominating companies in 15 years today are not even founded yet. Just like the big companies of today, most of them weren't founded 30 years ago. So what we really have is a green field and that's just look at the largest industries or the largest areas of human demand. And let's build one business in each one of them with the aim to become the global dominating force in 15 years from now with a founder that has ultimate resilience. And if you look at the largest areas of human demand, it's, it's, you get $100 from your employer. Then you spend $50 on Texas to the state on average. Then you spend you know, $17 on living. Uh, $12 on mobility, $7 on food, $5 on insurance, $4 on healthcare, 2 on services, and 2 on entertainment. And of course, I personally, with WeFox, I'm in the $5 area in the insurance. How does insurance of the future look like? And I'm trying to pave the way for all of the other entrepreneurs following me. We started a business for the $100 already. It's how does how does the global dominating player in terms of how an, an employer operates like look like in 15 years? And that's 
a company called Kenjo, for example, or we've launched a company for the $4 health. How does healthcare in 15 years look like? And what's the global dominating force? And we launched a company called Doctorly. And we also have a company for the $50 taxes. We have a company for the $17 uh, living by now. So and that's our investment hypothesis. So it's not like I look for deal flow and, and then I founders that have great ideas. It's, it's much more weak. Start them, we start them together. Uh, we develop the founders. We develop the ideas together. We develop the vision together. And then we go on the adventure together. What do you ask the founders in the first few meetings? What do you look for? Well, when we start the company, we know each other for probably years. But what I'm most interested in is this ability to change your beliefs, to change your thoughts, to change your behavior based on personal reflection. I do that by throwing the people into high-pressure situations. Because in high-pressure situations, you can't hide. I see how they react. And this is nothing that I can figure out in like a meeting or so. This is something that I figure out over a long period of time. Does this person have what it takes? For me, really, the CEO is the most important because, again, he is the driving force who's enabling the company to succeed, but also limiting the company from its own potential. And that's why I spent most time with that CEO really on figuring out his ability to engage on a personal growth journey. Can you give an example of one such company? You mentioned Dr. Lee earlier, maybe some others as well, and kind of walk through how your engagement is with these entrepreneurs. At what point do you say, yes, I want to invest in this company? So again, I'm always a founding investor. So basically, we have an academy, and then I see talent. I spend time with them. Then we say, all right, let's develop a business together. So on, with the example of Kenjo, for example, I know David, the CEO, for a long time. And we decided, okay, we want to launch a business together. And David, I think, is a great example. So I know him for, for quite some time. He was actually in Dyndia, my, my first startup. And he is a developer. And he arrived at Dyndia. And he was quite introverted. But I saw that sparkle in his eye. So I was like, okay. So what I'm going to do is we have the sales floor, right? With all of these aggressive salespeople that see bucks in our system and they want these bucks solved, right? Really fast because it costs revenue, it costs them commission. So I'm going to put him in a help desk on the sales floor where he, with a Kanban board, is working on solving the bucks right with the sales that are screaming at him aggressively. Because that would be something that really gets him out of his comfort zone. And he was open to do it. He was performing amazingly, much better than I had anticipated. You could feel he's really uncomfortable, but he did it. These are the type of things where I'm like, all right, this is CEO potential. And essentially, over the years, he was in the Founder Academy. We realized we want to start this together. Of course, we don't know what's going to come. but what we know is that we're always going to stick together, that I'm always there for him no matter what happens. We've built a very, very close relationship and I'm building a very, very close trust relationship with all of the CEOs that I'm investing in and supporting. They know that they can be show all of their vulnerability um, to me. 
if you look at David, I mean, now he's very successful. The company is performing like crazy in the HR tech space. And they are amongst the very hottest companies in, in Europe. But I, I remember I always invite all of the founders and students from the academy into my living room. And I have the founders talk about their experiences to inspire the future founders. I remember this one afternoon in my living room where David was really pale. And he was saying to all of the people, if you want to destroy your life, if you don't want to have friends or any fun, you should become a founder. He was really at the lowest low of his career ever. Right? I had a couple of like future founders come to me afterwards. I, mean, I don't think that's for me. I don't, I, I don't think I want to become a founder. Right? He was really, he, he scared them. Right? And the guy was absolutely at his limit. A few weeks later, he exploded. He went out there. He came to me and he was like, hey, Julian, listen, there's all of these investors that all of a sudden want to invest in my business. I didn't even go and reach out. And now, because I, I just gave them like a, a bridge financing because they were almost dying. And I gave them a bridge financing, I think at 4 million pre or something. A few weeks later, he came to me and said, there's offers coming in for 13, 14, 15 million. Something happened. He had a breakthrough. And these are the amazing stories. These are the amazing stories that everything can change from one second to the next by just the founder figuring out something about himself, uh, lying on the floor, getting back up and fighting harder than ever before. You pushed him out of his comfort zone and you tested his capabilities and he came out of it with flying colors, I see. Yes, that's the most beautiful part. It's very fulfilling to see that when you unleash potential in someone and it, it really blooms. Absolutely. That's what I like about venture capital and the work I do. I want to switch to another part of a conversation here. I usually ask about community involvement. So I'm going to ask you, is there a, a nonprofit organization that you are passionate about and which one? Yeah. One of the organizations I'm, I'm passionate about is the Jewish Museum here in Berlin. So I'm part of the board. And the reason I do it it's on the one side personal, but then on the other side also, it's about shaping society and also defining kind of the role of our generation and the responsibility of our generation and, and playing a, a small part in that. Um, so the, the personal side is I have a strong connection to Israel. I'm not Jewish myself, but my wife, for example, she was born in Jerusalem and I have a lot of Jewish friends. Uh, we actually had some Jewish dances at my at my wedding. Of course, I'm German and I have a grandfather who was fought in, in the war on the German side. And I think the topic of anti-Semitism is a very, very important topic, but it's, it's much more a symptom of a much uh, deeper problem that I'm really interested and concerned about, which essentially is that the speed of development, the speed of change through technology creates the need for people to have some type of stability to have um, answers in a world where there are no answers because it's very chaotic in a world where where no politician can truthfully stand in front of the citizens and say listen in 10 years you're going to be able to have the life that you've always dreamed of and that you're working for right to not have this any longer creates a huge danger to society and this danger is essentially that people are looking for very simple answers and scapegoats 
that they can essentially blame for their feelings of insecurity and instability. Showing a picture of a Mexican and saying, this guy here is responsible for your negative feelings. Or showing a Jewish person or showing essentially anyone and giving a simple answer is a huge um, risk because it's just going to get worse. It's just, just going to get worse over the next couple of years. Things are going to change faster. Existing structures are, are dissolving much faster. The stability that people want and need in their life is disappearing. The rise of simple answers is going to increase. That creates a huge risk for these vulnerable groups. That's, from my perspective, the biggest topic that our generation needs to focus on. We have climate change. And climate change is a huge and very urgent topic. And when we think about it, um, we already see implications of what this could mean. We're going to see more of them over the next couple of years. But really, when we talk about when is this really serious, it's going to be in, in a few decades to come. We can make a change now, but the impact is, is to be felt in a few decades from now. But when we look at the issue of threats posed to society through the irrelevance or the feeling of irrelevance of the masses because of development of technology, we're looking at a significant more imminent risk and a very, very dangerous risk that is not on many people's radars because technology will replace humans in the workforce and work is a very, very, very important part of people's lives and purpose. The feeling of irrelevance is more dangerous than the feeling of exploitation. I don't know the answer, <laughs> but I think that's the most urgent topic for our generation to work on. And that's why I'm trying to somehow with my activities in terms of social engagement, trying to figure out what is the root cause and how can we solve it. We don't have a lot of time. Julian, this is a fascinating conversation. You've touched on so many important topics, starting with your own personal life, how you started building WeFox, and the important topics that you are focusing on today for the future of the world. Thank you so much for spending time with me on this podcast and sharing your insights with me. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.